I'm going to start this morning by reading to you some lyrics from a song. And I think there's probably a certain group of people, a certain demographic that will recognize this song. And it says this. It's funny how some distance makes everything seem small. Uh, there's nods already. And the fears that once controlled me can't get to me at all. It's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. Let it go. Let it go. <laughs> I am one with the wind and sky. Let it go. Let it go. You'll never see me cry. Here I stand and here I stay. Let the storm rage on. Well, in fact, it sounds like all of you know it. So I, the group I was expecting might know it was parents of small children because that is, of course, Let It Go from the Disney film Frozen. I uh, have two daughters and our eldest, Layla, who's six, went through a rather extended and, and intense Frozen obsession uh, phase in her life. And our youngest daughter, Ellie, who's two, is just entering it. So we're now watching the films all over again. Uh, I know most of the words to the songs. Cause of course, in the car, we can listen to the soundtrack. You can't escape it in the car. Uh, so and they're pretty good. As kids' films go, you know, Olaf makes me laugh, The Snowman. So uh, they are pretty good. And that song I said was Let It Go, and that's sung by Elsa, who's one of the two main heroines, and don't ask me to explain why, she can freeze things with her hands. And she's basically been like constraining herself, and she fl flees her kingdom and builds herself an ice palace. And she's singing about how she's now free to live the life she wants to live and be what she wants to be. She's broken free from any constraints uh, or rules. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. And even though I didn't think uh, she knew it at the time, I want to suggest to you that Elsa was giving song to what people have called expressive individualism that pervades our culture today. Expressive individualism. You see, when you watch that film, if you've seen it, you might have thought you were just watching another Disney film. But I want to suggest to you that in fact, Elsa's catchy song is a, a byproduct of 300 years of Western philosophy and thought. And she was influenced, even though she might not have known it, by people like Jean-Jacques Rousseau and Karl Marx and Friedrich Nietzsche. And we have, we have arrived in a place now that people have called expressive individualism. Because we live in a society where we glorify the self. We glorify the self. The self is our ultimate reality, our guiding light, being true to who you are. You hear the word authenticity talked about a lot. And if we are to ultimately be true to ourselves, then we need to follow our desires, our wants, our feelings. But of course, we know that is not where true fulfillment comes from. True fulfillment is found inside the Holy Trinity. True fulfillment is found in relationship with God, who was there before time began, who was there before we began. I mean, it's no wonder to me that rates of anxiety and depression are skyrocketing, especially in young people. Because can you imagine the pressure of being told, you have to find meaning inside of you. It's all going to come from inside of you. Can you think of the weight of that pressure but instead, we can come to God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit and say, you give us meaning. You give us reality. You give us truth. 
Eugene Peterson said this, if we are going to live appropriately, we must be aware that we are living in the middle of a story that was begun and will be concluded by another. And this other is God. My identity does not begin when I begin to understand myself. There is something previous to what I think about myself, and it is what God thinks of me. That means that everything I think and feel is by nature a response, and the one to whom I respond is God. I never speak the first word. I never make the first move. My identity does not begin when I begin to understand myself because there is someone who is sat on the throne for all of eternity and he has thoughts about me. He has desires for my life. He loves me and he wants the best for me. So if we are to find ourselves, we don't look inwardly. We look outwardly and we look to the cross and we look to Jesus. So how have we arrived in this position as a society? Well, I'm going to take us on a really quick tour of a few hundred years of Western thought. You, you might find this bit really dull, so you can switch off, but uh, hopefully <laughs> I won't spend too much time on it. But I recently read a book by a guy called Carl Truman, who's an American theologian, and it's called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. It's nearly 500 pages long, and I haven't actually re I haven't read that book because it looks quite daunting. And then someone wrote him a letter and said, Dear Mr. Truman, your book's really good, but it's also really long. Have you thought about writing a shorter version for normal people to read? And he said, That's a great idea. And so he wrote another book at the start of this year called Strange New World. And that's about 190 pages. Much better, much better. And so I've read that version of it, and it's a brilliant book. And he goes through the last two or three hundred years of Western philosophy and thought to explain how we are in this position. It's called Strange New World, and the reason why he called it that is, I don't know about you, but as a Christian in 2022, I sometimes feel all at sea as to what society tells me is normal and what I need to believe and what, I, what needs to be okay with me. I sometimes feel cut adrift from what the majority we are told think is normal. You see, for centuries and centuries, society was governed by expectations that were set by the community. You might have heard it called sort of honor and shame. And there are still many countries in the world that would follow that sort of pattern. Now, I'm certainly not saying that's a better way of living. There's obviously lots of flaws with that. But that's the way our nation will have lived. So there were expectations about how men would live, women would live, children would live. All these expectations, and they were set by the community. But we have been on a journey for a few hundred years now where we have moved away from expectations from the community to I set my own expectations. So we had the Romantics who were philosophers in the 1700s and they said that identity was found in the inner psychological life and that society actually was corrupt. So any, any, any expectation from society on me to live my life was wrong. And Truman says this about them. He said, the romantics grant an authority to feelings, to that inner psychological space that all human beings possess. And those feelings are first and foremost genuine, pristine, and true guides to who human beings are. And we know already that clashes with the gospel because the gospel tells us that each of us are actually broken inside and in need of saving. We are in need of rescue by Jesus. Next, he moves on to Karl Marx. Now, I'm sure many of you have heard of Karl Marx. I'm going to guess there's probably not many Marxists, if any, here. But actually, Karl Marx has had a much bigger influence on our culture than we would think. And part of this 
is that he saw religion as a, as a sign of weakness and intellectual inferiority. And he actually saw it as, as an oppression to control people. And so he said we needed to break free from that oppression. And he said that everything in life is economic and therefore everything is political. And what that means is everything in life is a battle to be fought. And so it makes you wonder, why is it such big news when a baker refuses to bake a cake? Or why is it now such big news about what signs are on toilet doors in schools? It's because everything is political. Everything has outrage. Truman says this, the pre-political is no more. There is nothing in this world where human beings can relate to each other that is not a potential arena of political conflict. Because all areas of life connect to the overall economic structure of society and thus to society's inequalities and injustices. Next, if you're still tracking with me, he takes us on to Frederick Nietzsche. He famously said, God is dead. Uh, interesting statement. And a bit like Karl Marx, he also saw religion as something that was used as a crutch to support weak people. And he basically said, humans need to engage in self-creation. We need to break free from these chains of religion, and we need to make our own lives, become who we were born to be, a bit like what Elsa did. And Truman says this, if there is no God, then we are our own masters. We might put it another way, using an analogy of which Nietzsche himself was fond, we are artists, and as such, we are tasked with the art of self-creation. And isn't there a certain irony in him using the word artist when we know that God is the true artist and creator? And then lastly, you might be relieved to hear, we come to Sigmund Freud, who was a neurologist whose many of his conclusions have been sort of dismissed and discredited, yet he had an incredible influence on Western society because he argued that at the deepest level, our identity is found in our sexuality and our sexual, sexual desires. So you are what your sexual desires are. They are the basis of your identity. And Truman says this, the idea that human flourishing is virtually synonymous with sexual fulfillment is a commonplace. In fact, virtually an intuition of modern Western culture. The fulfilled life is a sexually fulfilled life. And isn't that our experience? Isn't that true? Be who you want to be. Be in as many relationships as you want to be. And so if our ultimate goal in life is to fulfill our desires, then to achieve that, we must shatter any constructs that would seek to shape us or tell us of a better way. So we have Rousseau and the Romantics, that identity and authenticity is found inside of you. Marx, that everything is a political battle to be fought. Nietzsche, who said we must be our own masters. And then Freud, who centered us on our sexual desires. And we get to a point, and Truman, Truman summarizes it like this, the modern self assumes the authority of inner feelings and sees authenticity as defined by the ability to give social expression to the same. The modern self also assumes that society at large will recognize and affirm this behavior. In short, the modern self is one where authenticity is achieved by acting outwardly in accordance with one's inward feelings. I find this so interesting. And I find it really interesting that he uses the word affirm there. Because I think the, the discomfort that we feel as Christians now is that no longer is it just okay for us to respect other people's rights to live the way they want to live. We're now expected to affirm them. 
and say, yeah, that's good. And that's why we feel this increasing shift of antagonism towards us. You need to affirm the way I live my life. You need to affirm because our identity has shifted to our feelings. And so if you don't affirm my identity, you are offending my feelings. And we live in this fluid, difficult to navigate world. So I hope you've tracked with me there. And I want to say this. We live in a culture that glorifies the self. And essentially what has happened is this. We have taken God off of his throne and replaced him with the self. We have taken God off the throne and replaced him with the self. Our worship, and I say we, as, I mean as our society, our worship is so often directed to ourselves. How am I fulfilled? What are my desires? And you know, the title of today's talk is actually The Power of Worship. The power of worship. And so as I prepared, I thought about all of the countless examples in the Bible of powerful worship. Again and again in the Old Testament when the people of God were going out to to battle and to face their enemies. It was so often the worshippers that would go out in front. And as they worshipped God, the victory would be won. The story of of Jericho, the walls came tumbling down as the people of God marched around the city and worshipped. In the New Testament, in Acts 16, we read about Paul and Silas who are imprisoned because of their faith. But instead of falling into fear or despair, they begin to worship and they raise their voices to God. And then a literal earthquake shakes the prison foundation so hard that the doors fly open and their chains are broken. In Revelation, we have the most wonderful, moving picture about how all of us, one day, every tribe, every tongue, every nation, we will all be gathered together in the throne room of God, and we will be worshipping him. Worship has a power like nothing else. As I prepared, I also thought about all of the incredible moments of powerful worship that I've experienced in, in my life. I've seen people healed as they worshipped. I remember receiving the gift of tongues as I worshipped. I mentioned a few weeks ago that once Jeff, who's on staff as well, we were worshipping together at a conference and it began to rain on us in the building we were in, in the room we were in. We've had some amazing times of worship at Revive recently where people have given their lives to Jesus as we worshipped because the presence of God was so thick. I remember last year that as I worshipped God, I heard him speak to me more clearly than ever before that I needed to go and extend forgiveness to someone. Worship is powerful and God speaks to us in a way through worship like no other sometimes. It has incredible power. And so I thought about all these stories, and I began to write them down. I I went through the Old Testament, and I wrote down the stories of worship, the New Testament. I wrote down my stories. You all will have stories, too, of how when you have worshipped God, you have felt his presence, either here, at home, in your life group, at previous churches. Often it's at conferences. We go to New Wine or the VLG or Soul Survivor, and those moments where people are worshipping can be transformational. But as I thought about it, I thought, this is about the power of worship. And I just thought to myself, this, it's all well and good talking about the power of worship. 
But if the day-to-day reality of our lives is that we have elevated ourselves above God, then our worship won't mean very much. If God is no longer on the throne of our lives, then who are we directing our worship to? Because I say this, we all worship. In fact, everyone worships, whether they're a Christian or not. We all worship, and our choice is what we worship or who we worship. David Foster Wallace was a very respected American author. He, he, he was an atheist, um, and he actually took his own life. But he said, he said this, and I, I, this statement always haunts me. He said this, There is no such thing as not worshipping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. Pretty much anything you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Doesn't that really hit you in the heart? And doesn't it actually highlight immediately those things in your life that you know have been elevated to a position where you worship them? If you worship money, you will never have enough. If we worship our bodies or how we look, we will never feel good enough. And if only he could have found the one thing that wouldn't eat him alive if he worshipped it. If only he could have found Jesus the one person that if you worship, you will be fully fulfilled. You will be fully released. You will live the life designed for you. G.K. Chesterton said this, we resemble what we revere, either for ruin or restoration. We resemble what we revere, either for ruin or restoration. And so I ask again, Who sits on the throne of your life this morning? Who sits on the throne? In Matthew 16, Jesus said some words that are well known, but the power they hold, I think, is unending. He says this in Matthew 16, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? How can we bring our worship to God more than ever in an age of expressive individualism? Well, Jesus gives us a great starting place there. We do it by denying ourselves, taking up our crosses, and following Jesus. And you know, denying yourself doesn't mean suppressing how you feel. It doesn't mean, you know, Jesus wasn't like a forerunner for the British stiff upper lip. He wasn't saying, you know, deny yourself and pretend everything's okay. It doesn't mean living a lie. What it means is you take yourself off the throne of your life and you put God in his proper place. Someone once said, denying yourself isn't thinking of yourself isn't thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. Denying yourself isn't thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. Dallas Willard sums it up neatly when he says, deny yourself and follow Christ, or deny Christ and follow yourself. 
Those are the options. I don't like that statement. I like to think of other options <laughs> that don't make me feel so bad. Are there some options in the middle where I can sort of do a bit of both and make myself feel more comfortable? Can I keep control of my, most of my money and not give it all to God? Can I keep control of my desires for a relationship or my desires for a, a career or a house or a job or a car? Deny yourself and follow Christ or deny Christ and follow yourself. Jesus tells us that the only way to save our lives, the only way is to lose it. We believe in an upside-down kingdom because that doesn't make much sense. But we know the Holy Spirit is here and he will help us. Jesus didn't make crazy statements like that. Go off to heaven and then leave us to work it out. The Holy Spirit is here and he is the comforter. And he is here to bring revelation. The Holy Spirit is your advocate. Jesus is in heaven now and Jesus is praying for you. Hebrews tells us that. He's praying for you. But on earth, whilst we are here, we have the Holy Spirit inside of us. And he is advocating with you, through you, inside of you. And so as we sit here this morning, I want you to imagine that your hand is, is in the shape of a fist. And then imagine inside of your fist, you are currently holding on to things that you are not ready to lose things that you are not ready to give back to God and I want to suggest uh, me and you I'm going to suggest that we all will have things currently that we are not willing to let go of you might be sitting here thinking not me well look I might leave a minute silence and you can think about it and I'm almost certain the Holy Spirit will, will highlight something so don't tempt me we all will be holding on to certain things. I know if I pause and think, I will think of more things in my life that I'm not even thinking of right now. So imagine your fist. Maybe it's your job. Maybe it's your business. Whatever desires it are. Maybe it's your body image. Maybe it's the way you dress. Maybe it's the way you spend your time. Whatever it is. We hold on to these things because we think if we do, they will make us happy. We think, look, God, if, if I'm being honest, God, I think I know better in this area of my life than you do. Because I know if I get this promotion, I'll be happy. So you're just going to have to take my word for it, God, on this. Everything else, yeah, yeah you're, you're right. But on this, I think I know best. So look at your hand. What's in your hand? And then this morning, the opportunity we have is to let go. To open our hands to the Lord and say, God, we give these things to you. Because if we hold on to these things, they will become idols in our lives. And we will worship them for as long as we hold on to them and elevate them higher than God. So why is worship powerful? Because it places God back on the throne. It places God back into his rightful place. 
The path of Christian discipleship is the path of the cross. It's the way of Jesus. And that path always involves dying before it involves resurrection. Things can't be brought back to life if they haven't yet died. And so we, as difficult as it is, we need to die to our own desires, our own dreams, our own wants, so they can be brought back to life in the power of the Holy Spirit. Because only then will they have the power of resurrection and eternity in them. If you want the life-giving, transforming, mind-blowing, resurrection of power of Jesus in your life, then we need to lay our lives down. We need to lose it, like Jesus said, so that we can gain it again. C.S. Lewis said this, Give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day, and death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will ever be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him. And with him, everything else thrown in.